Welcome to the Seven Ways Podcast, Sefer Shoftim, the Book of Judges. In this Downstream from Religion, Season 3, feel free to email me with comments or questions at rabbi at rabbibailey.com. Any kind of comments, questions, critique, etc., feel free to send it my way. In this episode, I'm going to go through the accounts of uh, Gideon, Gideon, a little bit more piecemeal because so many little sections of these chapters of of through test 6 through 9 are uh, relevant to the core ideas of Shoftim, the core ideas of Gidon um of of Netzach, what we call the eternity of values uh the eternal war of values physical war could just be a spiritual war so again it opens up in uh Perak Vav, chapter 6 with uh, the Jewish people, as we understood in the last podcast, podcast. They were not keeping uh, religion, the values, the Nitzach part of the seven steps of kingship, the middle step, the fourth step, and therefore they activated the uh, curses that are mentioned in the five books of Moses, uh, what we said in the Shema, the <clears throat> the second paragraph of uh, one of the holiest prayers that we say, and they had a you know um, their goods taken away through uh, Midian and Amalek. The, we understood the message to be that is not only a physical war but a spiritual war. Therefore, they are decimated to focus on the uh, chapters from the five books of Moses, the Chumash as we call it, in order to get back to their religious devotion. Uh, we go to 6.6. Uh, six, six. Uh, Israel became impoverished, and they cried out to God. And Hashem sent a man. God sent a man, a prophet, to speak to them, a very a mosaic type of a little historical account. Uh, God took you out of Egypt, and rescue, I rescued you, says God, etc., Typical type of mosaic, if you will, a Moshe, Moses type of uh, speech, a little chastisement, a little history lesson. And then we have Gideon, the paradigm of Netzach. Um, interestingly, this man who's a prophet is sent, uh, the, the Chazal, the Jewish sages, identify this man as Pinchas, Phineas in English. Now, normally, I understand when the Jewish tradition says that one figure in uh, the Hebrew Scriptures and the Tanakh is really another figure, that the underlying idea is that they had a similar set of behavior, similar personality. In this context, it's interesting because actually we see later in the book of Judges that Pinchas, uh, Phineas, is still alive. So it very well could be Pinchas, and the question is, why doesn't it just say that? Uh, I understand the underlying idea to be the same. Whether it's him, or whether it's someone similar to him, the idea of Pinchas and Eliyahu, Elijah, who keep getting put together, is that God is bringing salvation at the right time. God is bringing key messages at the, at the right time. So he's saying to them, hello everyone, this is a key message here. Listen to the Mosaic speech. I am God. Don't fear the gods of the Amorites. Heed my voice. The answer is not the physical war. It is spiritual battle. And that's in 6, uh, 10, Vav Yud. Don't fear the gods of the Amorites. So I've been doing work with my uh, research crew on the seven nations that inhabit Israel corresponding to the seven famous Kabbalistic attributes, seven spheros, but being the sort of evil version of them, the spheros de Tuma, the, um, the negative side of them. Um, and if you look, there are really 11 good uh, spheros, 11 good underlying ideas in creation and in mysticism, uh, which would correspond to, the, if you look at the genealogy, Canaan, there was a man named Canaan, and he had uh, 10 sons, I believe. Um, 11 people, those could fit into the uh, 11 concepts as well. 
So doing work on that is it's already been analyzed by famous sources, including Hasidic sources, Hasidim. I'm, I'm working on it through my own patterns. It could be the same, sometimes it's different. Um, so here, interestingly, he's saying don't listen to the gods of the Amori, the Amorites, and the Amorites actually match up with the third attribute, the Tiferet, the um, symbolism, metaphor type of idolatry. So it could make a lot of sense here. As we're moving from step three to four, we're saying, you know, ditch step three, which are basically evil metaphors and brainwashing, which is very prevalent in idolatry, and come with me to the fourth step, uh, uh, analysis, information, not um, metaphor. Get away from this right brain, you know, abstract, easily brainwashed uh, type of thinking and move towards study and analysis. That's actually quite a beautiful transition here. Okay, let us continue. The uh, so the angel of Hashem came. I apologize if English is not great for this audience. You prefer the Hebrew. I will try to juice the darsh in the Hebrew, expound on the Hebrew. I'm also trying to record one podcast for Jewish audience and non-Jewish audience. I'm just trying to get this out here during the holy festival of Sukkos. The booths. So this Malach, this emissary of God, comes under an elm tree in uh, Ophrah, belonging to Yoash the Aviazrite. His son Gidon was threshing wheat there. Okay, so initially the elm tree uh, is very reminiscent of it says that Abraham, Abraham was near the elms. <clears throat> so I, I'm just going to throw this out there. We are going to have a lot of connections with. Abraham and Moshe, Abraham and Moses to Gidon. Again, I think Gidon was the paradigm here for a Moshe, Moses type figure, not as much the studying aspect, but the the faith and the belief and the action aspect of what we call Netzach, we call bringing eternal eternal values uh, to the world. But there are also elements of Abraham. Uh, long story short, it, it does have to do with his physical prowess. His physical prowess as well. That's a long explanation, but just the underlying philosophical idea is that if you believe that the universe is all part of the same creation, same underlying themes, then you and I have a kindness. We all want to be constructive and share with each other within creation. You immediately have step one and step four. You have giving and being constructive, not being judgmental at the wrong time, and you have religion. Because if there's a prime mover, prime creator, and someone who does Hashachapratis, divine providence from God, then you, there must be morality by definition. Um, there must be good deeds and bad deeds, etc. So this, the whole Abraham and Moses are sort of the epitomal, pun intended, prime movers of uh, the Jewish faith and um, philosophy and religion. So it makes sense that they would be intertwined here. So when I refer to the connections, you understand that it's philosophical and within Gideon's personality, Gideon's personality. He's going out and doing like Abraham and filled with physical strength. And he relates to uh, bringing religion and values to the masses. So, um, he's an Ofra, And I forgot to mention this in the general audience version, but he is someone who is highly analytic, similar to De uh, Devorah, Deborah, and they're both near... The tribes that come from Yosef, Joseph, because there's there's an ongoing rift between Joseph and his people that team with him at a given time, and Judah and who teams with him. Judah again has the kingship um, strength, rooting out evil, and Joseph is the one who unites different parts, but he also accesses the necessary ideas and sustenance from the secular world. So the, sec the quote-unquote secular world can bring idolatry and non-kosher ideas and um, a downfall of religion because things are too secular or impure and appropriate. On a positive level, Joseph will harness those things that are physical. But in any event, there's a rift there. So it makes sense that that uh, Gidon, the Gideon, would be 
coming in this area to fix the fact that they lack full protection against secular world. So when we come back to our quest to understand who is attacking, why are they attacking, in what region are they attacking, region, and who saves the day, here, the reason they're attacking is spiritual deficiency. The two nations that are attacking are attacking because they're the anti-religion nations. Amalek, Amalek, attacking their anti-religion, destroy religion. And Midian is attacking their anti-religion, replace your religion with an evil one. It's in a region that has a particular weakness within the Jewish people. Joseph's children, Ephraim and Manasseh, Ephraim and Manasseh, they are excellent at the organizational leadership and business, prosperity, bringing together the parts. But the weakness is, if they're so involved in the secular culture, as the Midrash, the Jewish tradition says, we're, gonna, we're worried about Baal Cholomos, Joseph's dream, the word play goes. He's not just a Baal Cholomos, a master of dreams. He's Baal Cholomos. He's going to bring the Baal through his dreams. Openness to the outside world without a filter leads to decay within the Jewish people, within the nation. That's why Gideon had came in this region, even though the message echoes through the whole country, through the world. And he particularly was chosen to save the day because he is a master of understanding Netzach, which is understanding values, tradition, honoring his father, belief in God, dedicated to your values, stand up for them, fight for them physically, fight for them connected to the spiritual. That's why he's chosen for this famous story. So back in the text, immediately uh, Gideon is speaking to someone. Um, if you look in the text, he only realizes he is an angel later. This is very common in uh, Tanakh, in the Jewish canonical scriptures. It, a lot of times people can't tell if someone is a prophet, a man of God, a rabbi, a prophet, or progressively an angel, transmogrifying to look like a person. Or just speaking in a vision, only that person sees it, but they think it's a normal human. Okay, he's speaking to this person, threshing wheat in the wine press because they have to hide um, that they are making their making their sustenance, hiding for Midian. This angel says to him, "Hashem is with you. You're a mighty hero." That's that. That's that physicality, the physical and the spiritual strength. Gideon says to him. If God is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders and our forefathers? So immediately, similar language to Pinchas, who was just sent, or the prophet, similar language to Moses, this mosaic religious language. Where are all these, you know, typical salvations? And as I highlighted in the last podcast, it's a typical attitude, attitude of this time. When is the salvation coming for me? But the message that is gradually understood by Gidon and others is, you, my friend, have to take initiative for the message. But it cannot be only a physical battle. And this is where we're getting into our times again and again. In this Osniel ben Kanaz, the first judge, comes from Yehuda, Judah. He is similar in his attributes to a mighty king. He doesn't kickstart the steps, the seven steps to kingship. He brings 40 years of tranquility temporarily because of his strength, but it's not lasting because it lacks the full spiritual grassroots movement that is necessary. And I'll say it again, just to be controversial and disturbing, while trying not to be, picture whoever your mighty hero is. If you liked President 45, if you liked 44, if you didn't like either one, but you like your own particular strong leader or management consultant, this book, that book, you know, picture whoever you liked. 
But the problem is they haven't achieved salvation in our times because they don't have that right spiritual element, unfortunately. And again, you, you know, your rabbi or a spiritual leader, I'm sure they've, they're a righteous person doing wonderful with their flock, but the uh, world power leaders haven't gotten there. And they're not all disgustingly corrupt. But the point is that they use brute strength, these successful leaders, where there has to be a grassroots movement movement from below. So God sends Gideon on a particular message here to change his thinking and to tell him, you, my friend, will lead the battle against Midian. And again, I think Midian is the main culprit here. Very often powerful communists or totalitarianists, which is really what idolatrous leaders are, mind control. They send anarchists to do their bidding, which is Amalek here. So the, the, the main foe is Midian, the anti-religion religion. God will send Gidon to save the day. But Gidon says, I beg of you, uh, how will I save Israel? My thousand uh, is the smallest in Menashe. They used to divide up the country into smaller groups. I am the youngest in my father's house. I was reading this for the 30th time or so, trying to think of ideas, uh, trying to understand the text, I should say. Understand the underlying ideas, what I think is there. I believe he's saying he does... Not just that he's, oh, I'm a tiny man, I'm nothing, I'm like Moses, don't pick me. I think he's saying he does not have political influence. God says, this is not about political influence, my friend. This is about, next sentence, I will be with you. You will strike down Midian, like one man. It has to do with God's blessing. Furthermore, these are magical words here, my friend. These, God tells the forefathers, when you hear this magical phrase, when you hear these magical Hebrew words, those are words of salvation. And that's what God tells Moshe, Moses. This is like my name here. I will be what I, I am what I am. I will be what I will be. This, that's what God tells Moses there in Exodus. Here in Shoftim, God is telling Midian, is telling uh, Gidon that he will bless him and spiritually will strike down Midian. However, Gidon wonders and he says, don't depart from me, I want to bring you a tribute. He wants to bring him a, a korban, an offering. And he said, I shall remain until... So Gidon brings him an offering, not... Not even really sure that he's a messenger of God or a godly manifestation. Uh, the angel uh, takes part of it that matches up with what an offering is, which is not the gravy. And then Gidon realizes it's an angel of Hashem. And Gidon realizes it's an angel of Hashem. And he says, oh my goodness, will I live? I didn't realize you were a full angel of God. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu, God says to him, peace be with you, don't be afraid, you will not die. So Gideon built an altar there, and it's there until this day. Continues. All right, this, a story that's very similar to a Jewish tradition story about Abraham. Uh, Hashem said to Gideon, take a bull that belongs to your father, and this and that, and go break down the altar of the Baal, that powerful, mighty, lowercase g god that belongs to your father, Cut down the Asherah tree next to it. So we understood this to be physical, manly, strong gods. And the Asherah tree, the sort of mother nature, feminine sort of god, lowercase g. And chop it all up. Make an altar to the real god. And take a second bowl as a fully burnt offering using the wood of the Asherah tree. Burn it all down. So Gidon and his servants did this stealthily because they can get in trouble. Idolatry is obviously the prevailing religion there, and people will be killed for it, for breaking that religion. The people got up in the morning, and they were very upset. They said, who did this? Someone said, Gidon did it. And the men of the city said to Yoash, his father, bring your son, Josh, and he shall die. 
He's broken the altar of the Baal. Kadani of Sheratri. So, Yo Josh Yoash says something very smart. Well, you're taking up the grievance for this idol. Let the idol take up the grievance. So at this point, Yoash is understanding very well that his son is right. Most likely he had doubt in his heart this whole time. And he's realizing these sticks and stones and gold and silver are not real. They will not stand up and defend themselves. The logic finally got to him. On that day, they named Yoash. Actually, his father named Gidon Yerubaal. Because let the Baal take up a grievance against him. So Yeru is like fighting against it. They're taking up a grievance against it. Um, so Gidon gets a special name. This is similar to a story in a Midrash where... Um, long story short, but Abraham, Abraham recognized his creator at three, and he fully became monotheist and started um, rabble-rousing against them when he was 40. But when he was a child, his father said, hey, you, stay in charge of the idol store. So father left. Um, Abraham, Terach, his name is Terach. Abraham, uh, Terach left, Abraham smashed up the idols, except for the biggest one, put the stick in the biggest idol's hand, and said to his father, oh, the biggest idol smashed them up. And his father said, what are you talking about? These are inanimate objects. They don't smash each other. And Abraham said, listen to what your own ears are saying, etc. So th this is, again, a connection of Yoash to, uh, a connection of Gidon to Abraham and Moshe. Abraham and Moses. So, next is this big battle. All the Midian and Amalek, gather, and the people of the east. These are the Bodidim, Shodidim. These are the uh, desert nomad plunderers gathered from the east. You know, there's a whole desert there in the Jordan River. And they encamped. The spirit of Hashem clothed Gidon. So he blew the shofar. His whole family nearby of Aviezer was mustered after him. They came. They sent messengers to Manasseh, and they came, men, messengers to Asher, Zavul, and Naphtali, and they came. Now remember, these are the Joseph tribes who have weakness, and these are tribes from the north who were negligent in fully conquering cities up north, and that had to do with money. So we're trying to forsake the money, and remember that the word of God, the spirituality, is what's important. And... That's why that's one of the reasons why curses of poverty and destituteness come when people don't properly engage in spirituality. We have to remember what's important. Uh, Gideon said to God, "If you want to save Israel through me, as you spoke, he put out a piece of wool on the threshing floor. So let's uh, understand Gideon's asking God for signs through the lens of Malbim, who was a contemporary, who is, who he was, passed away, contemporary writer and analyzer, analyzing the text as, I'm going to say literature, obviously I mean high-level textual analysis, comprehensive, as people do in modern times, but keeping it kosher. So here he understands Gidon, not testing God's ability, that's not, you know, side to go and people say that's not appropriate. God has the ability. But the first test here, that dew will cover the fleece, and then the second test that it will be dry, means that Gidon knew his town started to do repentance. And he knew that he had good zuchus, good merit, that God can bring blessing upon him. But he wasn't sure if Israel was... Righteous enough to receive merit from God. So the dew covering the fleece represents that Israel had merit to receive the miracle. And then just in case Israel did not have merit or lost it, if the fleece is dry, it represents that he, that they are dry from zuchus, from spiritual merit, but he himself was still full of merit and he would win. And that's what God did. God showed him that Israel has merit, and he has merit, and they were going to win. Going back to earlier, when 
Gideon speaks to God, he asked for um, a sign around the time of the offering. So uh, Malvim understands that to mean that it has to do with blessings and, and curses. So there's a famous principle in Judaism that if God says uh, a blessing will come, that is for sure coming. If God says something negative, the uh, cur curses and destruction will come, that does not have to come. But he was wondering if that's true of only of... So he understood this to be true about a nation. But he, he was wondering about an individual. An individual who hears a blessing or a curse, does that stay? If Specifically, if someone receives a blessing, can his individual, his or her individual misdeeds ruin that blessing? So God gave him a sign that he would succeed in this mission. Interestingly, Malbim writes that that was the Brisbane Habasarim. The covenant of the parts. So Abraham makes his initial covenant with God, bris, and they divide up the parts of the animals there. That ceremony, with all of its many symbolisms, Malbim learns that to mean it's a commitment, a promise that God will give Abraham as an individual the blessings of future progeny and a future nation, and he will not lose it. It's a Ceremonial commitment. A very beautiful interpretation, as usual. Chapter 7, Paragzion, the meat and potatoes here. So God does not want too many people to be involved in this victory because humans tend to say, we won because of our own power. My power and the adroit skills of my hand have caused salvation and that makes people forget God so what is it 20,000 gave birth to 10,000 yep 22,000 go and there's 10 less they have this whole test where they go down to the water the people who kneel or lap their tongue like a dog, they're not appropriate for this mission. Only 300 men. We don't want people who act like animals. We don't want people who are used to bowing to idolatry. We need 300 men. They will deliver. Okay. They, had show, they took shofars, the ram's horn, to blast. And they came with Gidon. Interestingly, Gideon has another sign. Someone has a dream over here that the metaphor is Israel will beat them. So Gideon is happy that this idolatrous uh, soldier has had a dream that the Jews will beat them. He divided the 300 men into three companies and put into their hands shofars, empty jugs, and torches. He said, imitate me, so they stand on the side of the camp. When he blows the shofar, they blow the shofar. And they say, for Hashem and for Gidon. Very reminiscent of Hashem and Moshe. They believe in God and Moses. Putting them together. Positively, Gidon and Moshe are the conduit for religion. But people might get confused and value the individual that they can see. So they did this, they smashed the jugs, and they said, they said, to God and for Gidon. And they had the lights in the middle of the night, and the camp became very disjointed and frenetic, and they began running around. So Gidon and people from Naphtali and Asher, Naphtali and Asher, and Manasseh pursued Midian, Chased them down. Interestingly, they capture two leaders of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. Oreb and Zeb. Raven and Wolf. Those are definitely, you know, uh, nasty scavenging animal names. I'm thinking here, you know, 
Avodah Zarah idolatry is full of this transhumanism. It's full of taking the nastier, deathly parts of creation and making them human, merging with animals, animal analogies, animal idolatry. So it's uh, continuing those idolatrous elements here. Continuing the idolatrous elements. The men of Ephraim are upset that they were not summoned initially for the battle. But Gidon answers them that you were sure summoned at the end and you got to capture those leaders of Midian, Oreb, and Ze'ev. That, that seems to mollify them. As Malbim elucidates, they still were able to capture those people in the end. In the context of our tribes and attributes approach, it could be that, you know, Ephraim is one of the children of Joseph, and that's really step number six in the whole process. So it could be Ephraim is concerned that Manasseh, his brother was brought into the into this whole process of war at an early stage, and he is thinking he needs to be a normal, uh, typical one of the tribes. But the answer back is, listen, you are reserved for more advanced skill down the road. Each step of the battle will lead to more complicated scenarios we are reserving you for being the sixth step, the Joseph step, the uniting step, not the earlier step in the process of anything, especially war. But Ephraim was concerned that he'd be left out, and how could Manasseh be there? So the, in the context of the tribes and the attributes type of approach, um, it's almost like Gideon is telling them, Gideon is saying to them, you actually get a more advanced piece. You get to be the ones that are like the marshals coming along, seizing the leaders instead of just the army doing the regular old physical battle. You come along when the war is more advanced. Okay. Another way to look at this Ephraim and Menasha issue is that Ephraim and Menasha were brothers. And when Gideon calls Manasseh to serve, muster up, even though Manasseh is closer to the battle than Ephraim, Ephraim perhaps should not go, he's farther south. It's only natural that brothers would have jealousy, of course, in our, in our um, normal everyday life we see this. But, you know, not to denigrate Ephraim, but perhaps he had a noble spirit that he wanted to help, this tribe wants to help. And um, they wish they were called as well. They would they would say, "Hey, get on! Why don't you call us too?" Like our brother, our brother was called. Our brother's right nearby. It's a high order sibling um, comparison to each other. But uh, Gideon says, "No, you get to arrest the high level uh, evil of what is our transhumanists." And the people of Ephraim do not answer back. Okay, so. Then, an interesting incident, you know, Gideon arrives at the Yardane, there's the Jordan River, they're about to cross outside of the land of Israel, the 300 men are still with him, they're exhausted, he comes to a place called Sukkos, and then Penuel. So the people at Sukkos, hey, give us bread, and um, let us rest, we're exhausted, give us bread. He's pursuing Zevach, and... Salmuna. So I want to mention Zevach means like an offering. And Salmuna, Tzel, is shade. And Muna means restraint. Very likely linked to Abu Zara, the, the darkness and uh, restriction, um, being tied up perhaps. Um, so those are definitely idolatrous names as well, along with the raven and the wolf. Uh, those are kings of Midian. But the, the leaders of Sukkot said, um, are they already in your hand that we should give you bread? So when Gideon says, when I come back, I will thrash your flesh with desert thorns and briars. It seems like a strange and harsh punishment. 
Similarly in Penuel, he asked them for uh, food, unspoken here, and they said, um, similarly to answer them, so he said, when I return to this place, I will break down this tower. So it's interesting that he feels the need to punish them so harshly, and why did they not give those simple humanistic gifts? Um, I believe an approach is as follows. Uh, continuing with our Netzach, with our uh, eternal values thread, uh, Gidon very clearly saw the need for adherence to Jewish law and values, the Netzach, the eternal values. And the people of Sukkos are saying, we, you know, they are not recognizing the spirituality of the moment. They're saying, you're pursuing 15,000 men, you're only 300. Perhaps they didn't hear about the victory earlier, perhaps they don't have such a belief, a faith, that they're supposed to revive through Gidon at this moment. And they're saying there's 15,000 of them, 300 to you. Should we give you bread? Are they already in your hand? No, they're not in your hand. You're fighting against a big tribe. And the same thing for the people in Sukkos. So Gidon um, says that he must punish them. So perhaps the punishment of uh, the thorns and the thistles is that, you know, when people are in trouble, they cry out to God. And when people people are supposed to be punished with pain when they do sins. God gives us mercy. We're not always punished. We want to have a higher order level of service to God through choice. Just as we provide for children, the positive discipline method. We want to offer people higher level choices and planning before there's punishment. But unfortunately, the low level, the lower level service of God is fear and punishment which is really the beginning of the whole section in chapter 6, Pergvav. They did not listen to God, therefore they must be. They must have their um, bounty pillaged, you know, to wake them up. So if Gidon is punishing them through divine inspiration or knowledge, doing the right thing, that's possibly the punishment, even though it's harsh in our times. Um, and perhaps we have to accept that these Shoftim are not Perfect leaders. I just coincidentally, synchronicity, Jewish synchronicity, Hashaka Pratis, divine providence. I was studying the Agada, the homiletic expoundations on the book of Koheles, Ecclesiastes, which is read on the holiday we're in now. It's 9 26 21. It is um, Sukkos. <laughs> it's a holiday of Sukkos, just like in this uh, passage here, an 8 6. <laughs> And in there, it talks about how Shimshon and Gidon were hypocrites somewhat. They say one thing and do another. Can't have leaders like that. Shimshon was teaching Torah, but in the Torah it says, don't go after your eyes and your heart, and he did that. So he did not have perfect behavior. And Gidon taught not to worship idols, but he himself made a physical token quasi-idol in this ephod, in this golden breastplate, as we will speak about. In this podcast. So these these leaders were somewhat hypocritical. They were the best message for the time, perhaps the highest level perfection at the time. And we must listen to Moses and his generation, Moshe Badoro and Yiftach Badoro, as we'll see later, Yiftach, Jephtach, I believe in English. We have to follow the best person we have at that time. That's the authority. Um, so whether this was a high level punishment or not, there is some sort of message to take from it. That, that people need to cry out to God, have belief in God. Um, it's not about quantity of human power, it's about the spiritual power. Um, and it's also important to note, there's another thread here. We keep talking about how Gidon is trying to dispel imaginative thinking. You know, D- Devorah showed, shows, Devorah shows through Tiferes that we have to have messages and metaphor and media that are kosher with positive expression and not having lies. And who is the paradigm for Tiferes, for this metaphor and messaging? It's Jacob, Yaakov Avinu, in Boratius. He's the one that goes to Sukkos and Peniel. After he is victorious with Esav, Esav doesn't kill him, 
he goes to Sukkos, and, and he fights with the angel in Penuel. So you can see how Sukkos is sort of a place of appreciation and humility. At that location, even though it's not in Israel, it's supposed to remind us of appreciation and humility. And he put his cattle in Sukkos, and he built a home there. So it's also kind of remind us that our physical property that we own is supposed to be linked to God. You know, right now in Sukkos, a meeting in the sukkah, along with the fellow Yidin, the Jewish people, we remember that our home is really temporary um, in, in this world. And the physical items we have are meant to be used for spiritual purposes. It's more important than the physical purpose. So Gidon might be saying to them, you all are the biggest fools around. You live in a place that's supposed to be about appreciation and amuna and about divine uh, faith in the divine. And you're saying you won't give me bread? Oh, you, you guys have need some serious uh, cleansing over here. I'll do it for you. And he goes to Penuel. In Penuel, uh, Yaakov, uh, Jacob fought with an angel. It's a linkage from the earth to the heaven. And th what do they do? These people go in this tower. You know, oh, are you going in the tower to protect yourself, to be religious? Are you going in the tower to be the Tower of Babel, Migdal Bavel, to, to reject to preempt, to bavorn, we say in Yiddish, to preempt the heavens? Or are you trying to link the earth and the heavens? That's what Jacob did, his dream uh, at the holy site with the ladder. And then going to Penuel, fighting with the angel. That really changed the constellations in heaven and was a spiritual moment. It, it was a loss in his thigh and hurt the Jewish people in their money for generations. So Jewish institutions have a hard time getting money religious ones. Universities get tons of money. But he came out of there with a certain victory, a divine victory. And I think uh, Gidon is saying, you all are fools as well. You know, you're sitting in your tower, but instead of being in a ivory tower and then ivory tower and then come and sharing, you're in this tower where you think you're powerful and protecting yourself, but absolutely not. Y'all are foolish, and I will break down the tower. And the Radak says he only killed the people who attacked him when he was taking down the tower. Which makes sense, because he doesn't say he's going to return to kill them. So let's go with that. Um, so just those two incidences have a lot of spiritual messages, and messages of faith and dedication. Um, finally, he ends up killing the evil Zavach and Salmona. And another interesting thread, uh, uh, Gidon has this young man with him named uh, Yeser, and that is actually one of Jethro's names. We keep mentioning Yisro, Jethro, and his people, so I think this was a Jewish person here, but interesting thread that these people who are uh, sort of Josephites from the Yesod, these sort of dynamic... Uh, Josephite type of people as Jethro one of his names is Jether and this could have been that type of person you know he doesn't go and kill the evil person he's young so Gidon has to slay him to do the commandment of removing evil from your midst um, he punishes those people in Sukkos and in Peniel and in a very Gidon-like fashion, the men of Israel said, Rule over us, you, your son, and your grandson, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. They're not quite getting the message. They, they see the physical victory. They're forgetting the spiritual one. But Gidon says to them, I shall not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. Hashem shall rule over you. This is why he was chosen from the beginning, to remind the world that it is a spiritual battle that we're always in. And that's why Netzach, the attribute of the eternal fight for values, relates to Moses. Because Moshe kept bringing the law to the people and reminding them about the law and spirituality and faith, raising his hands to the heavens to beat Amalek. But Gidon does not totally vanquish the evil. He asked them to remove their nose rings. 
because there were Ishmaelites. So, so it's interesting to note Ishmaelites and Midian. Um, it's overlapping. It's like a Venn diagram, as it says with the sale of Joseph. It calls them Ishmaelites. It calls them Midianites. And he has them remove the noses, and he has them remove their crescents. So these were, you know, Arabic peoples, so to speak, before, long before Islam. Similar ideas and customs and metaphors. So, but again, they were the, they they were not the anti-idolatry Muslims of the past fourteen hundred years. They are idolatrous nation, anti-religion, replacing it with the idolatrous religion. So Gidon realizes these people don't quite get the message, but he says to some of them, at least give me your gold. We can turn it into a divine service, a food um, apron. But that unfortunately became a stumbling block for these people in Mokesh. It became a snare for Gidon and his, Gidon and his household, and they turned to behave in the, in the wrong direction. So in the... Uh, Part one of this podcast, we brought a couple of interpretations about string after this Baalim and Baal Brith. Um, I wanted to bring another one just to sort of tie things up here. So, a lot of what's going on here, and in the subsequent chapter about Abimelech, his son, a lot of it has to do with asserting one's beliefs over other people. So why do we need to hear about Gidon's son's conflict and tragedy? This is the type of thing definitely that people would skip over when they were learning about these interesting judges like Samson and Deborah. The important message is that even though we don't like to hear the news too much, and we shouldn't, I'm a psychotherapist, I'm not just a rabbi, and you know, obsessing over the news and tragedy in society does make us depressed. The problem is you can't avoid the impact of government in our lives. You know, I'll just ignore the government, and it'll, and it'll it won't affect my life. It does, and we as much as we can handle it, we have to get together and demand uh, healthy leaders, proper leaders, better leaders. So the messages here really are that if someone rules out of their lineage but they don't understand leadership and power, tragedy can come very easily. So, you know, his son comes along and kills his other sons. You know, there's a whole new psychology comes when people get into position of leadership. You know, I always say to people, well, you think you'll be so benevolent when you're a leader? Let's say you, and you talking to you as well, dear listener, we're making, you know, $30 million a year in a company, and the mayor of your city, the governor, perhaps the president decide to change the laws so you are going to lose 80% of your company, 90% of your wealth, you know, hardly have any more earnings. I doubt you would say, well, this is great for society. I will just step away. Perhaps if you had a bunch of savings and you had an easy life, you might just step away. But I think more likely a new psychology emerges there. And you probably would pay for lobbyists. And you probably would begin to want to, as crazy as it sounds, pay for people to intimidate government, join together with big companies to put pressure on people, perhaps even threaten their lives. Yes, I just said that. So a new psychology emerges that make us desperate to keep our power and our money. Uh, sort of like a new psychology emerges when people win the lottery. You know, people win the lottery, they have hard mental challenges, mental health challenges. All of a sudden they want more things and uh, collections and items and they obviously go bankrupt as the famous studies axioms show. Sort of a new part of the brain is activated there. So here too, when someone gets power, you know, a new psychology emerges and when the wrong people are in charge that are godless, Idolatry will show up, as it does in the subsequent chapters here. And as if uh, leadership is corrupt or power-hungry, they would just be obsessed with power and not healthy, benevolent, kingly leadership. This, you know, this leader, they call it Tsar, you know. Being a Tsar or a Moshe is ruling without the people 
people's agreement, a proper healthy king, step seven of the leadership program. These are not proper kings and leaders. And that is really encapsulated in the name Avimelech. My father is the king. When Yitzchak, Isaac, in the book of Voracious, Genesis, encounters Avimelech, Avimelech becomes very jealous. It's a very contentious relationship. I really think it's a paradigm for an abusive relationship. And Yitzchak, Isaac, is healthy and grows financially and moves, and Avimelech is jealous and wants to make a treaty and doesn't want to make a treaty and doesn't want to make a treaty. It's a sign of insecurity. My father is the king, but I am not the king. And he always brings Picho Sartsevo. He brings along this military general to bolster his confidence because he does not feel like a confident person at all. He wouldn't mention his general. You know, when, it's interesting to know this in, in Scripture, when it says someone's walking around, they didn't just get in their car and drive to the you know, uh, press conference to speak. These people were rare, wealthy people in society usually unless it says they were alone, they had uh, multiple uh, servants and people that were with them. And it wasn't always because they were super rich. They could have been, you know, uh, just somewhat well off, but everyone was so poor then that they had a crew of people with them. So when a king or a you know, regional king, city-state king would travel around, they did not always need to mention that he had uh, officers with him. It's implied, really. But they constantly mentioned Pichol Sartsevo, Pichol, everything in the mouth, whatever he said, uh, went, <laughs> you know, uh, ruling over with the real power. Um, and we said the similar thing with Sisera and Yavin. So here too, he's, you know, keep calling him Abimelech, son of Gidon, not really, not really a proper leader, and those are messages for leadership now. His uh, Gidon's Youngest son from a different mother, um, Yotam, ends up giving a curse through this whole analogy over here at the beginning of chapter 9, Perikates, and then the story goes on with improper leadership, and then, as the narrative says, the curses are fulfilled uh, because Yotam, son of Jerubal, put curses upon these people. So multiple times, as in Tess, Mem, Vav, it's 946. It calls a location by the name of a bris. Baseball, base el bris. The house of the bris. The house of the covenant. Or perhaps circumcision. Because there's another interpretation as to this ball bris idol that uh, led to a downfall in the wake of Gidon's death. No pun intended. So what is this Baal Briss, you know? So this new interpretation is the people had a little phallus. It was an aver. It was a male. It was an idol with a male organ or perhaps a male organ. And I believe the idea, of course, number one, idolatry always has inappropriate intimate relations with it. So that obsession with, excuse me for saying these words, but you know, sexuality, intimacy, organs, all of that... It's part of idolatry, but again, as Rav Hashem Levit speaks about, idolatry is not just this, you know, pure bowing down to stupid stupidity uh, behaviors. It's representative of something. Casting off of all responsibility, indulging in my own egotistical fantasies. Um, so that definitely comes along with this culture, and that's permeated our culture. Obsession over that, addiction over that. Um, and as I mentioned in Little Addendum podcast, you know, a uh, breakdown of intimate morality leads to breakdown in society. There's a linkage there of the uh, self-control, the family unit, being whole, chastity at the right time. It directly correlates to society staying whole. Um, and aside from the intimacy aspect of it, it has to do with asserting your beliefs over another person. So, you know, there's a sort of desire for men to assert themselves over others. And it's, you know, aside from the intimate part of it, you know, um, jockeying for power, jockeying for position. You know, what Moshe and Gidon really tell us is that there is a physical battle going on, 
but there is more importantly that spiritual battle I've mentioned 50,000 times already. Um, but, you know, it, it's important that we have to know we have to be assertive for morality. And that, you know, more than ever, I see in the fall of 2021, people are going to city council meetings, school board meetings. People are demanding election integrity. They're putting pressure on people who make backdoor deals, putting pressure on people with some of this crony capitalism. And a lot of people are being exposed um, for being pedophiles and inappropriate banking, banking and legal issues. Uh, it seems to be, quote-unquote, the good guys are exposing the bad guys in many instances. I'm not talking about 17th letter of the alphabet and all those things. I don't take part in that or listen to it. But just in terms of investigative reporting from both sides of the aisle, contrived political spectrum, from independence, from proper alternative media, investigative journalism, I believe that people are, people are really becoming more assertive for morality. That's the lesson, the physical plane, the spiritual plane. Uh, but we have to remember, you know, we need people who are praying and studying to go out and to give us the spiritual oomph, spiritual power. But I believe that there are a lot of people doing that. We could all, we always have to pray more, study more. We need people that will take the spiritual and bring it to the forefront. And that and that's why specifically Gideon Gideon is is doing physical actions in this world. You know, you, you could say, I love Moses. He's my favorite biblical character. I love Moses. I'm going to study like him. And maybe you're the type that's a great studier, a great teacher. But we have to have people who are moralistic and commandment-oriented going out there. Physically, Messiris Nefesh, we call it in Hebrew, physically risking it all to bring people food and sustenance, risking it, risking it all to bring messages of morality, even if it's hated by the main media, even if it's hated by anarchistic, satanic uh, people. You know, And again, <laughs> more than ever, they're finding satanic little rituals all over the country and the world, whether this and that feast from this society, goats without heads floating in the water, it's happening. People walking around with black robes and horns and satanic symbolism. Again, as a Jew, I don't believe literally in Satan or in Satanism as a force, but God allows humans to perpetrate evil. And many people hold that God allows certain forces, energies, whatever you want to call it, to exist before they're vanquished. I'm a huge rationalist, so I believe that. Um, I don't believe in the you know energies. Um, but I believe that humans perpetrate this sort of satanic evil in the world, satan in Hebrew, antagonist, antagonism, disturbers. And we can always do more commandments and study, but we must bring assertiveness to morality. The, the school board, the city council, the business practices... Uh, teaming together with other co-religionists, so to speak, teaming, teaming together with other people that are constructive, instead of being, uh, you know, upset about this and that movie and media, this and that, social media platform making alternative versions that are positive and letting the disturbers and the non-constructive people wallow and fall to the wayside with their control and censorship and evil values. We have to bring the, bring Netzach, bring the message of Moses and Gideon and Devorah to the world, not to be embarrassed about being observant people, being proud of it, speaking to more people who are co-religionist and similar religionists. And in that way, we will be assertive for morality, assertive for morality, and bring us closer to our salvation in our generation and the messianic era, which God willing will be soon or at the right time or at the right time. 
Thank you for listening to the Seven Ways Podcast, Sefer Shoftim, the Book of Judges, on this downstream from religion season. Please reach out with an email, a comment, or a question, rabbi, at rabbibailey.com. May you all have a blessed day.